Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bible, if you have it, to Colossians chapter 3. My name is Adam, if I haven't met you yet. Um, I, uh, I work here, and um, I'm excited to, to share the word of the Lord with you this morning. I hope that it's encouraging and edifying and convicting and moving as the Holy Spirit does. I'm going to pray for us this morning as we, as we get into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you are unchanging. Lord, through every season, through every, um, through every shift, through every, um, I don't know, notch in culture, Lord, you have remained steadfast. And Lord, it's not that you just remain steadfast, but you have always been righteous. You have always been true. Lord, we, we want to proclaim together as the body of Christ that you are trustworthy. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember your word. Lord, that you would write it on, on just the, the, the tablet of our heart, Holy Spirit, and that we would glorify you as we treasure the knowledge of Jesus. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the last couple weeks, or probably three weeks, I'm going to pull this forward just a little bit. Yeah. The last few weeks, Nate has been teaching through a quote-unquote series. Um, it started off as a, like an offshoot of the Message of the Cross series. So if you guys ever follow on with like playlists or anything like that. Um, we started a series about the cross. And then from there, we kind of got onto this, this tributary, so to speak, of, of community. And so I've rebranded this entire series, um, because I'm the one that puts things on the internet and stuff, um, as a call to community. That there, this isn't just a, a emphasis for the sake of emphasis. This isn't just like, well, we really want like our open door church brand to be more successful, so we're going to make a big deal about coming to church. This is something that is a deep New Testament value that it's really hard to get away from, and it's really easy to preach about because it's all over the place. I like that, that Nate has drawn attention to the fact that more often than not, the vast majority of times that the scripture is identifying something with a command or, or some sort of... Um, some sort of resolution or, or direction that it's not just addressed to a singular person, that it's addressed to the saints as this collective group of people that belong to the Lord Jesus. And I think that's so exciting as, as um, the world feels more and more disconnected and the world feels more and more lonely. It's exciting to see that the Lord is bringing his people together for his purpose the way that I've summarized this in my mind is that um, when, we, when we look at the, the plan of God, when we look at the way that the Lord has written our story into his story, it's about more than just me. It's about more than just us. That everything we need for salvation is sufficient in Jesus on the cross. But to actually follow Jesus correctly, we need each other. And that's a scary thing. And, and as a person 
I've said this before, and I don't mean, I'm not just like, maybe I am just like telling self-deprecating jokes to make you feel more comfortable, but I am not, I, I'm a pretty good person with being lonely, you know? I was sharing with our, our, our small group of, of married couples this past Sunday that, or this past Friday, excuse me, that um, I got married when I was 20 years old. Don't necessarily recommend that. I think I was pretty young, pretty dumb, still am. And I got married, and the Lord blessed it, and the Lord, we're, we're bound together, and it's a beautiful thing, it's glorious, whatever. But I, could, I couldn't say at 20 years old, I was following Jesus, I was serving in the church, I couldn't say like, man, I want to get married for the glory of Jesus in my life. I wanted to get married so I wouldn't be lonely. I didn't want to be alone. And, and I found the person that I liked to be around versus other people that I didn't. And so it's like, well, I got I to gotta latch this person down so that way they can be there. And what I realized after the fact is that actually I was pretty good with being alone. <laughs> and, and now like the, the major conflict of the first several years of our marriage was like, I wanted to be by myself and she's always there. And, and, and she's like, you took me away from my family and, and I quit school and I did all these things. You got to spend some time with me. And uh, I realized like, Lord, there needs to be this great regenerating in my life now that I'm married, now that I, that I have made covenant with this other person. I have to change. And, and over the years, I've realized that, that I need her and, and I've realized that I need you. And, and I remember sitting there, I, I'm about to preach a sermon to a group of teenagers and, and I feel weak, and I feel, and this isn't even a singular instance, this is most instances, I feel weak, and I feel stupid, and I just have my friends with me. And they're just there to tell me, you're not that weak, you're not that stupid, let's, let's follow Jesus together. And how much I realize, like, man, everything I need is in Jesus, and Jesus is enough. But, like, there's something that's really profound about the Lord looking at Adam in the Garden of Eden, and this isn't even a testimony of like marriage or anything like that. I think we use that metaphor a lot because it's useful and it's crossed cultures and stuff like that. But when he looks at Adam, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Because, I mean, that's a pretty good relationship. It's you and God in, in perfect harmony and everything's working really well. But the Lord in his wisdom decided to make all these other people. And, and we're, we're designed and meant to function together. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And the gathering of the saints is fitting for the praise and the glory of his name. And I'm glad. I'm glad for this little notch of his family that we find ourselves in in Pagosa Springs. I think it's, it's imperfect, and, and sometimes we, we stumble around, but the Lord is doing something. The Lord has started something. The Lord has given us a heritage that is beautiful, that we weren't a church that somebody made up one day because they were mad at another pastor. We are a church that came from prayer that came from an organization that was zealous that the, the gospel would be preached everywhere. We, we came and we have remained against all odds, against having plenty and having little, the Lord has sustained us. And I'm grateful for this little church in this little town. Um, the way Nate has been framing this teaching is around a section, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it from Hebrews chapter 10. It'll be on the screen. It says, let us hold fast, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. 
but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen? So, when you look at this theme of, like, assembling together, how to stimulate love and good works, there's not a shortage of passages to talk about this, and that's really exciting. Because you start to feel like, what am I doing? When you're like, this is only mentioned one time in one place, and we don't really know what it means. It's like, we probably should look into this a little bit more. <laughs> I don't know, actually know what I'm talking about. Um, but this is something that is frequent and zealous. And when considering this... Um, this was kind of a, an emergency session, so to speak. Nate was really sick yesterday, and he's like, would you just get something ready in case I'm, like, dead tomorrow? And so um, as I was thinking about this, I was sitting in my living room, and I was like, Lord, I, I would love to follow the theme that we've been in. And my mind went to uh, Colossians, and that's why I have you turned there right now. And, and I hope that this, this section will be encouraging to you, and I hope that it'll, it'll provide something for you that maybe um, is, is glossed over or missed uh, frequently in like um, congregational settings. So I just want to give us a little bit of background. It's almost like uh, really difficult for me not to give background. I feel like I'm just lying to you if I don't explain a lot of things, so just bear with me for a moment. I think it's actually helpful. So Colossians, as a letter, was written to a church in a city called Colossae. Now, this, this community, later on in, in kind of ancient history, was considered like a major sort of player in the ancient world, that they were really close to a trade route. They had like kind of a purple hint to their wool. I don't know exactly how that works, but it was pretty valuable. People really liked it. But in the time that Paul wrote this letter, they were not so influential. Among the epistles that he wrote, they were probably the least influential city. But in this letter, there is some very powerful and unique things. I read this in the commentary, I was going to say this week, but that would be a lie. I read that, this in a commentary this morning, that um, there's some of the most profound high Christology in Colossians as any New Testament book. It's really competing with the book of Revelation in terms of high Christology, which is very impressive. And so, really, you, you start to pose the question like, okay, Paul obviously loves Jesus, so no wonder he talks about Jesus. But why specifically in this letter to this church was he so set on, on giving them this message of like, this is how glorious, this is the truth about Jesus. We're not mincing words today. We are sharing the absolute truth about Jesus and his divinity, his role, his power, his sufficiency, his supremacy. Why was this so important in this season? We can see um, within the historical context that um, Paul didn't actually plant the church. He didn't, wasn't the per first person to bring the good news to Colossae. There's actually a guy named Epaphras, and so presumably he brought the good news to them. He traveled there. This is Asia Minor, so this is like modern-day Turkey. It's about 10 miles east of ancient Laodicea. This is uh, a small sort of village city. And this guy, Epaphras, who is a disciple of Paul, came and he brought the good news. He planted the church. He raised them up, not unlike Paul would. And presumably somewhere along the line, Epaphras brings this sort of uh, update to Paul. You know this church that we planted in Colossae? They're starting to talk about some strange things. Are we talking like Galatians strange? 
or are we talking Corinthians strange? Like, what kind of strange are we talking? And they begin to have this conversation, presumably. This is all outside. This is the way we, we try to figure out why things happen the way they happen. But what, what, uh, what progresses is this idea that there is something happening in Colossae that they are being able to gauge this is going to have a negative connotation in the end. We have to, we have to go and do something preventative to address what is happening, what is kind of budding in this time. And there was some sort of toxic philosophy that was, was growing in and around the church of Jesus in Colossae. And, and Paul doesn't go right out and say it. And so that's why I think like it, it hadn't turned into like an, an outright like movement necessarily, but it was budding. It was, it was, it was starting. So Paul doesn't say like, oh, you like dirty Gnostics, how dare you believe this false gospel, or you, you uh, like, uh, Epicureanism is running rampant and you're, you're, you're wrong, Stoicism is not the gospel of Jesus, all these sort of things. That's not what was happening, but you can see the way that Paul addresses the church, that there's something that is, that is growing in their minds and in their, in their congregations and their assemblies that needs to be addressed. In Colossians 2, we see, starting in verse 6, it says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So the reason that I point out this from chapter 2 as we're about to go into chapter 3 is that we see Paul's method here. That what he's addressing, this polemic that he's developing, is to attack and disassemble a philosophy of empty deception. This is a philosophy based on the traditions of man. And, and I've, I've kind of toiled with this phrase, the elementary principles of this world, which sounds like, well, that should be something that we can count on, right? Like they're the most basic things about the world. Surely we can count on those. But what Paul is assuming here is that people are trusting these kinds of philosophies rather than trusting in Jesus. That something about this philosophy, this way of thinking, is actually at odds to the gospel rather than in defense of the gospel. And he can see through his own wisdom and learning and knowledge of both Jewish culture as well as Hellenistic culture, he can see this is not going to end well if it continues in this direction. And so his method in dealing with these philosophies is to reject them, but not just in like a, I won't do what you tell me to do, I'm not going to believe anything. But his, his, his method is, you need to embrace Jesus and walk in his way. And for some of us, that's an exciting notion. For others, that's the, like the most vague thing that we could tell you to do. It's like, if you're confused and, and you're, you're kind of hurting for truth, just trust Jesus and follow him. It's like, but what do, we, what, what do we do? What do we actually do? And I love this because, um, like what I said before, this, this high Christology, this high um, sort of unpacking of the knowledge of Jesus is directly related to the idea that these philosophies are so toxic and so confusing and so contrary to the way of Jesus. 
that he's saying, don't just follow the course of this world. Because really, within Asia Minor, within the, the Greek um, sort of uh, mindset, they were not stupid people. Like, they were not like people who were like, uh, like fear and power, animalistic sort of people. They were debaters and philosophers. They were, they were uh, considered wise and, and knowledgeable. They lectured and they, they taught and they did all these things. So it's like, it seems logical that we would, we would invest in this stuff. It seems logical that this would be worthwhile. And, and somehow Paul is saying, no, this, this train of thought at the expense of Jesus is going to be very, very hazardous to the truth. And, and popular, popular philosophies of the, of the time were, were things like Gnosticism, which in a non-exhaustive way kind of separated spirit from body. And you can see this in a lot of early Christian traditions too, is that uh, your spiritual ascension, intellectual ascension was the most important part, but you could just do whatever you wanted with your body. <laughs> It didn't really matter because eventually your body was going to decay and die, but your spirit was the thing that was actually truly you. And, and this is uh, true in, in, in some sense, but the reality was the New Testament is filled with prescription on what to do with your body. That there's a primary method of worshiping God that is serving him with your body, doing the things that he called you to do. And so to just say like, oh, my body doesn't really matter. That's not really who I am. I, that can do whatever it wants. It can serve idols and do all these sort of things. It can commit uh, atrocities and injustices. It doesn't really matter because in my spirit, I know that Jesus is the Lord. No, like if something is true in your spirit, you don't actually believe it unless you follow it, unless you actually do these things. And so... Um, another thing is like asceticism, which is almost like, uh, forgive me if you're like an expert on ancient philosophy or something like this, and this is painfully simple to you. Uh, I'm a painfully simple person. Um, asceticism is almost like the opposite where your body really matters. And if something is fun or feels good, it's bad. And so it's like you have to punish your body in order to actually adequately serve your purpose before God. And, and people, uh, I actually read this in a book once that that's like the origin of calling like prayer before a meal grace. Because you don't really see that sort of language in the Bible. You see grace in the Bible. You see Jesus blessing food in the Bible. But the idea of like, hey, let's say grace came from an early Orthodox tradition of like, God, would you forgive us? Because this food is going to taste good and it's going to offer us nourishment. And we just know that anything that feels good is bad. You know, I, I remember having a young person come up to me who just loved worship, just loved music and stuff like that. And they're like, I'm just afraid that if something is, is too much fun, it might be sinful. And I was like, I mean, I, I guess it depends because you can definitely have fun in injustice and evil. <laughs> but like, um, but I, I think just because you enjoy something doesn't necessarily connote that it's bad. You know, like if you enjoy like singing the praise of Jesus... I don't think he's going to be mad at you. I think that's going to be a really good mark for, for where you're going and what you're doing. And so Paul's response to these kinds of philosophies was, don't, don't try and, uh, they were like worshiping angels and stuff like that. that. That apparently was a thing that was going on. Um, don't do that. Just stop. That's good advice. Stop doing that. But in replacement of that, you need to treasure 
and, and explore the, the, the riches and excellencies of Jesus. It's this endless fountain. It's this bottomless ocean. It's this beautiful thing that you will never exhaust. You will never get bored of. It will never be unsatisfactory where you have to start adding in your special sauce to spice it up. It's never going to get dry. This is something that is deep and true. And so that brings us to the section I want to look at today in Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. I'm going to take a drink really quick. Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, excuse me, consider them as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So we're, we're, we're slowly wading into territory that is pretty universally agreed upon. Like if you're just constantly an angry person, people aren't going to be like, man, love that guy who's always angry, who's always saying mean things that aren't true. Love that guy. He's just the person I want to have over for, for dinner. I want to call him up when I'm troubled. Like, that's awesome. Love that. Like, everybody agrees. Like, if you're angry all the time, something's wrong, you know? And, and there's room for, like, man, you were wrong, so maybe you should be angry, whatever. But this lifestyle of malice and slander and lies is something that most people in their right mind can agree, this is a good way to live. And it was embodied by Jesus, that Jesus absolutely got angry. We can read that in the incarnation, that he was filled with indignation, and he did get angry at injustice and impurity. He did do those things for the sake of the glory of the Lord. So it's not like if you're ever frustrated, you're a sinner. You know, like the idea that is being emphasized now is like we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, so to speak, and walk in the way that he walked. This is going to be the most important thing in combating anything that will prevent you from holding fast. And I think that's something that is, that is really, really valuable, that this, this idea, this phrase that Paul uses in other places as well of the, the renewal of your mind and the consideration of your earthly body, that these two things need to work together, that our mind needs to be filled with the knowledge of God, and he needs to be able to translate the way that we see the world. Um, I remember uh, talking to uh, someone dear to me, and they were advising me that therapy would be a really good idea for me. And I was like, couldn't agree more. I think that sounds like a great idea. Probably should do it. 
And they had some, some people that they knew who were good counselors, whatever. And, uh, and, and I was just kind of talking about this idea. And uh, they're like, it, it wouldn't be of any value to you to go to like a secular psychologist or secular counselor. And I was like, well, I don't want to be some sort of like stiff neck person that doesn't believe in modern science or anything like that. I, I want to be open-minded. They're like, but to modern psychology, you're a crazy person. Not like in like your like neurosis or anything like that or, or whatever. You're a crazy person because you think God talks to you. <laughs> and that's something that they're going to try and unplug. <laughs> like they, they want you to stop hearing God talk to you. They want you to stop believing. Like hope and all those things are, are positive for, for uh, like mental health. But the idea that you like commune with the Lord and those kinds of things, that's like crazy person stuff. And I was like, oh, that's a good, good perspective. I should look into that uh, for the future that like... The idea that the Lord is with us and the Lord is, is, is in us through the Holy Spirit is something that doesn't make sense to the world. Even the way this chapter opens, I was actually studying uh, Romans with, with Braden this week, and we were talking about this idea of being um, hidden in Christ, that our life is hidden in Christ, and that when he's revealed, we'll be revealed. And there's something to that, that like, no wonder our lives don't make sense. We don't even see what our lives are actually like until we actually see the Lord as with our eyes, like we're seeing him with faith as in a mirror right now. But when he is actually revealed to all creation, our lives start to make sense. And that's kind of a bunny trail, but it's valuable. If you feel like you're meeting tension, if you feel like I understand the way of Jesus, but it just doesn't make sense with the way that people live. It's like, absolutely. That is just not the way it works in, in our day and age, that it's not the, the popular or easy way to follow Jesus. But as we, as we bring a polemic against things like Gnosticism and asceticism and Stoicism and all these sort of things, without dwelling too much on what we're combating, uh, Paul dives into how to focus on the Lord. So I want to read um, verses 9 through 11 again. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. I think in this statement, and Paul says this in several places in the New Testament, there is an inevitability and a need, I would say, for diversity in the body of Christ. That the uh, sort of conformity that exists in the body of Christ is yielding to Jesus, that we're all supposed to do that. Nobody's got like, well, I, I'm, a, I'm an 80% Christian, uh, so-and-so is a 60% Christian, but the pastor is 100% Christian because they're supposed to lead the church. No, we're all supposed to yield completely 100% to Christ. But inevitably, with the seemingly limited, limitless amount of backgrounds, uh, ethnic realities, all these sort of things, there is going to be economic, ethnic diversity within the body of Christ. It has to be. If, if there's not, we're doing something incorrectly. Like, we may agree on the person of Jesus, and that may cause us to live our lives similarly, but there is going to be diversity, and there should never be prejudice because of that diversity. 
And the Bible goes to great lengths to speak of these kinds of things. And, and I think for good reason. <laughs> I think people are treated differently based on their background and their, their reality. And so this isn't like a subscription of like wokeism and I'm trying to like trying to like make our church progressive or something like that. But this is something that is real. Like prejudice is bad and it has no place in the kingdom of God. Racism is demonic and it has no place in the kingdom of God. Stereotypes and this sort of evil, this sort of hateful thought and speech has no place in the kingdom of God. I'm not saying just check your mind at the door and don't consider issues, but it needs to be addressed and dealt with because the Lord has forgiven us all. We were all his enemies and he forgave us in Christ Jesus, in his blood, that by faith through grace, we would actually be with him, that we would actually be his friends and not his enemies. And that equalizes everyone. So I don't know if anybody's like, man, I just really want to be racist. I would love to talk about that one-on-one. Let's not like, I think that's something that the church needs to deal with and needs to deal with tendencies and stuff like that. But if you just have a group of people that you really want to hate, let's get together. Let's talk about it. I'll bring Nate. We'll, we can talk about this. And, and I know that sounds like in jest, but really, I think that's something I, I had a couple uh, invite Shelby and I over to their house to tell us that they, they didn't like people from the Middle East. And she's like, I know that's wrong, but I just don't. Because we wanted to be missionaries in the Middle East. And she's like, I just don't know how to deal with this. And I was like, I think you should probably stop. I don't, like, I don't know what to tell you. you know? I'm not going to say like, Islam is super cool and you should really like it. It's, it's evil. But it's like you can't just hate these people. It's all they've ever known. That's why they need the good news of Jesus. That's why they need the love of God. And it's like I worked in youth ministry. And sometimes teenagers are jerks, man. And it would be easy to just be like, I don't want to care about these kids. I don't want to love them. (laughs) And just be like, I I hope I graduate from this someday because I'm just tired of it. It may be like that for you with, with certain family members. There may be people's siblings, parents in your life that you're just like, man, I, I look forward to the day that I never have to speak to that person again. But the Lord has no room for this, especially within the body of Christ. Guys, there are like, I don't know, I, I think I could probably confidently say as a confession before you all, I probably spend too much time on the internet. I don't know if any of you feel like that, but I get caught into these webs there's this, there's this dark corner of YouTube that's called discernment ministry where it's just people who just like to hate on each other. And it's like, I get it. We need to call out wolves. We need to call out false prophets. There is heresy. It exists. It's real. But it's like people will just analyze every dot and tittle of something people say and just rake them through the mud. And so like, I, I have this experience, not in my notes, but I feel like maybe it'll free somebody today. Um, there's, a, there's a guy on YouTube that I really like, and, and he does great content. And I don't always agree with him, but I think he does just such a good job to expose things biblically. And these, these discernment bloggers were just taking everything he said out of context and just saying he believed things that he didn't believe and just defaming him and slandering him. And I was like, that is evil. How could you be this sort of way? These people are evil. And I realized I'm going around the other corner. You know, it's like if we're all supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ, it's like I can't be like, man, those people are so wrong. Don't ever listen to them. And then like 
Well, they were just saying that about him, and now I'm getting around the other corner. It's like, Lord, help me to, to love your people, and Lord, help your people to be right with you before you just, mercy runs out, and you just have to take us down, man. Like, this is just a dark age that we live in. Um, there's something at the end here. There's something at the end of verse 11 that... Um, if, if we could all get on the same page, you don't have to like grunt in approval or anything like that, that prejudice and racism and those sort of divisions have no place in the kingdom of God. Uh, that's good. If you disagree, we can talk about it later. But there's something here at the end that uh, I, I, was, I was praying about and I was thinking about, and, and, and in my head, and in the way that I read it, it makes perfect sense, but there is an emerging movement in which people usually identify like progressive Christianity, that the phrase Christ is all and in all would be very, very tempting. That there is this philosophy, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. There's this philosophy that uh, is, is usually called like a universal Christ or Christ consciousness. And it's, it's championed by some uh, progressive opponents that like that Christ, Jesus was Christ because he was enlightened. That he was able to achieve Christ's consciousness because of the way that he lived and the way that he thought. And seeking this inner enlightenment, he was able to achieve Christ. And you can too. And there's been lots of Christ, like Buddha and, and, and all these different expressions of, of peace and hope. They, that these philosophies were all uh, sort of converging on the same sort of idea as a universal Christ. That the, the divine exists in all things, whatever. And I just want to say, in short... And, and with, with some sense of boldness, not to, to discredit anybody in the room, that is heresy. That is outright lies. That Jesus himself, from his own lips of enlightened Christness, said that I am the way. Not you can be the way, or, or you can save yourself. There's no, there's no instance of that in the New Testament. And to try and use the scripture to defend those sort of perspectives is gymnastics. It is like deep perverted disciplines of twisting the scripture to fit your own agenda. And so if, if that's something that you're like, hey, but what about this passage? What about this? I would, again, I would love to talk to you. But I want to say as, as a representative of this church and hopefully the body of Christ at large, that is not the truth. And when it says Christ is all and Christ in all, what that means is that Christ is the supreme Lord over everything. What that is to say, and I hope you have a translation that is less literal than mine, that is a little bit easier to understand. Um, literal is not always accurate. That's just languages just don't work that way. If you say something in, in Spanish and try to translate it into English, those languages are very similar and they don't translate one to one. But the point is that Christ is the Lord, that Christ is supreme authority over everything forever, and he always has been. He didn't achieve that by any means. He is but we can talk about that later. So, as we continue through 17, we get here uh, what I like to call, scholars and theologians will call the meat and potatoes. What we get here is the substance that this is not just theology, but it's actually an explanation of what to do. We call that praxis. This is what you actually practice to walk this out. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. Have you ever had like a friend or, or a family member tell you to do something without any directions? I need you to be more romantic. What does that mean? 
This is one that gets me all the time. People have told me this for years. Make friends. Like turning apples into oranges? How do I do that? You make a small group and you make people come to your house on Friday nights. That's how you make friends. <laughs> or you go to a small group. That works too. Um, no, it's like things like that are, are so frustrating to me. And I, I never like to just subscribe to, to language that is vague or, or, or uh, like unspecific in that way. But I think here as we, as we get into it, the Lord begins to expose something through Paul that I think is remarkably helpful. It's remarkably helpful for us this morning. And I think it'll benefit you deeply in your own life. Let's look at verse, thir- or, I'm sorry, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, so that whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Verse 14 says this, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell with you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And verse 17 says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And I think this is so, sorry, I like straight up leaned away from the microphone for a second. This is so meaningful. I just want to take a few moments and just look at each of these sort of instructions that Paul gives and, and, and give us some insight into what is actually being said. But this idea of, of recognizing that you are set apart for God, holy is not to say like, oh, well, now you're perfect. So anything that you want to do is perfect. No, like you are set apart for God and you want to hold on to that position. Like you are holy and beloved. That it's not your own effort that keeps you in the favor of God. It's not your own effort that keeps you before God in his will. It's the love of God himself that retains you before him. And he says, you need to put on something. And I love that sort of language because it feels so relatable, right? It's not a matter of like, find within yourself compassion and gentleness. I think within myself, I have maybe a, uh, a teaspoon of compassion <laughs> that sometimes I'll just see things and I'll just completely turn it off. Like, I'll be like, wow, that sucks. Anyway, and, and that, that's not like a permission to all of you to not feel things. <laughs> I hope that that's convicting for you as well, like that the Lord would look upon people who opposed him and slandered him and have compassion for them. That the Lord Jesus in his own incarnate ministry would look upon people, scores of people who had been healed and provided for and say, I feel a heart of compassion. They're like sheep lost without a shepherd. That I've provided like immediate needs for them, but there's still something very significant that's missing. And that the Lord would help us in his grace to put that on, to put on gentleness, to put on humility. Because once you start getting into these things, humility is, is kind of the last enemy to be killed, right? That <laughs> Like, well, now that I'm compassionate, I'm more compassionate than you. Now that I'm, like, treasuring the knowledge of Jesus more than you, 
then I'm really God's chosen and beloved holy to his purpose, right? Like God's going to use me now. And then the Lord ends up in his variety of methods knocking you down and you feel humble again. So it's important with all of these things to put on humility, gentleness, compassion. (laughs) Verse 13 is funny. Uh, Let's read it again. Bearing with one another. Again, we're getting this language of community. We're getting this language of an assembly, a group of people, a family. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And I'm not a big fan of like cherry-picking scripture. I think you should read things in context and understand where it's coming from. But that by itself is already a good enough reason to forgive someone. But what did they do? Like, what, what happened? How did this work? It's like, Jesus forgave you when you were an idolater and an enemy of his heart. So you should forgive those who, who sin against you. And this isn't permission for injustice. Because the Lord is the avenger of the flesh. Like, the Lord will bring justice. But it's not our job to be like, man, that person is, is dead and condemned in their sin and I want nothing to do with them because they cut me off in traffic. They should be, they should be tied up. Like, there's no, there's no room for this, That w- especially within the body of Christ. We are supposed to bear with one another and forgive each other as Jesus has forgiven us. And if you have ever given Jesus a reason to forgive you, you are a liar. That's just not how it works. That's not how grace and mercy works. You've given no reason for Jesus to treat you the way he did. And this is funny to me because when I, when I read this this morning, I was thinking about a very memorable ser- sermon years and years ago. This had to be, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Pastor Dwight Dean was here and he was preaching on this very passage and it was so powerful, and, and, and I think it, it honestly touched the hearts of several people that were in the congregation at the time um, that were holding offenses to one another, that we need to bear with one another. We need to be able to forgive each other, especially within the body of Christ. We can't let these petty disputes rob Jesus of glory. And we were like, who can argue with that? We're not arguing with Jesus forgiving us. That would be silly. So we need to forgive one another. It was particularly memorable because somebody got really offended at that message. And, uh, and we were in the secondhand meeting to talk about the, the thing that happened. And I was like, wow, what a wild, of all the messages to be offended about, a message about being kind and forgiving and not being offended actually really offended somebody who was very defensive of their right to be offended. Um, so if that's you this morning, Let's make, a, let's make a date. You know, I, I'm usually in and around the church every day of the week. Let's, let's talk about it. It also reminded me of just a couple of weeks ago, Nate was looking at uh, 1 Peter 4.8. And it'll be on the screen. We can read it together um, if you have that back there. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And this can be really confusing Because it sounds like, well, didn't Jesus cover our sins? I don't understand what this is talking about. And I love the way that Nate broke this down is that uh, when we read it in in its context, what this is actually referring to is not necessarily sins against the church or anything. It's sins within the church. So if somebody within the church has sinned against you, has done something that was wrong, we are to keep fervent in our love for that person because this will actually uh, 
kind of bring justice in those areas. That the prescription is not to just immediately subscribe to indignation. It's to persevere in love for one another. And, and, and that segue into love, and, and, I, and I wrote this in my notes and I highlighted it in red so I make sure to say this. This is by no means a prescription to like suspending justice or just like shaming victims or something like that. If people are being mistreated, like we are meant to be advocates for justice, but we're not meant to be judge. Does that make sense? Um, and, and I think I, I can't give you enough examples for this, but if you have been wronged, we as a church want to be on your side. We want to defend you. If you have wronged somebody, the church also wants to be on your side and bring you into reconciliation and peace before God because this is the command of Jesus. This is what we're supposed to do. So I'm not just saying like, if somebody's wronged you, just bottle that noise right up. Just ignore it. It'll probably kill you later. You know, like that's not at all what, what I'm trying to say, but the idea of, of persevering in love and embracing forgiveness for one another is, is so deeply important. Verse 14 is, is a beautiful segue from that love to this. Um, verse 14 says this, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And I think when, when I have read this in the past, I generally think that it is um, implying that, like, if, you're, if you manage to put on love, then there will be a perfect bond of unity. And again, the prescription to put on love sounds like the most tutti-frutti thing. It's like, what, how do I put on love? Like, how do I get better at love? I don't understand that. But I, I, I've grown more to see that the description of love in this verse is to say that love is the perfect bond of unity. That when we actually function in unity, that is where love is abounding and functioning in its correct place. That we've, we've um, somehow reconciled and gone through the diversity and the differences and the, the pains and the struggles and the, the, the uh, petty offenses or the big offenses. And we've managed to come to this place where the, the glory of the Lord has unified us. Not by, I don't know, making some sort of homogenous uh, robot thing, but by actually working in love for one another that we can see past each other's faults and shortcomings. We can see past our own faults and shortcomings and function in community as God would have us to do. And, and I think this is, is something that um, there's this scary balance between things that the Lord does in us and things that we willingly do. And, and I think there's something about all of these instructions of putting on gentleness, putting on compassion, putting on love above all else, forgiving, that there's something about this that does take a voluntary operation. That it's not something that like, all right, God, if you want to forgive everyone, you better just do it through me. I'll, I'll just be the faucet and you just turn the valve and, and open it up and, and let forgiveness pour out of me because I'm going to sit here until you do it. I remember uh, reading Charles Finney's biography and he was teaching a bunch of pastors and they were um, really struggling with his teaching and his theology. And he was kind of asking why they wouldn't repent of compromise, why they wouldn't repent of like misrepresenting the gospel. And they're like, I get what you said, that we have misrepresented what Jesus said. I get that. But I just don't feel like the Lord has given me repentance. And he's like, what? 
He's like, yeah, the Lord hasn't made me repent, so I don't know how to repent. And it's like, you repent. Just do it. You know, like, I don't, I don't even understand how to, how to more theologically explain this. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. That's not the way Charles Finney talked. But, um, but it was this, this sort of struggle that they were like, I just feel like the Lord hasn't done it in me yet. And it's like, I want to give you uh, some sort of freedom this morning within the confines of the word of God. I don't think this is, this is somehow heretical or something like that. If you want to forgive somebody and you feel like God isn't forgiving them, that's not you. <laughs> like, you are not the one that's going to naturally want to forgive someone. The Lord is, is like convicting you and moving in your heart. Forgive them. And, and I know that it's complicated, and I know that there's hurt, and especially, like, I listed all kinds of examples earlier, like family members or friends or, or people from our past or anything like that, and I get it. It's not that easy. I get it that there's, there's more stops on this road uh, for some people than others, and I just want to encourage you, in, in, in light of this entire series, you're not in it alone. That bearing with one another is not just a matter of, like, when we're here in this room, from this time to that time. Like, if you want help, like, none of us are experts. Maybe somebody's an expert out there. I'm not an expert. But if you want help, man, I want to help you. I want to help you walk through that. And I, and, and I think we can, through the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, see this light together. <laughs> Let's keep... Uh, keep looking at this sort of instance, my mind goes to John 13, which is remarkable and convicting and beautiful. If you look at verse 34, it says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. I think that's, that's so hard, Jesus. Like, you're, you're telling me that it's not my sharp wit and communication skills and polished theology that people are going to know I'm from Jesus. It's the way that I love his people. The way that people will actually recognize the difference between a gifted communicator or a bubbly person is through their love for his church. And I think that's insane. And, and Jesus would frame it in such a, such a, it feels like it's not a New Testament way to frame it, right? I have a commandment for you, a new one. What? Are you allowed to do that? Can we, can we start inventing new things? It's like, no, this is actually the oldest. This is the essence of the law and the prophets, that you would love God, that you would love your neighbor. And Jesus raises it to the standard. It's like, think about seeing how he loves us and think about God's great love for us. Think about these, these passages like Romans 5, that while we were in sin, while we were far away. Ephesians 2, that while we were dead in our sin, God had mercy for us. Think about these things in the love of God. That while we were a, a harlot defiling ourselves under every tree, that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us in his full measure of, of pain and shame and, and, and taking our iniquity and our guilt on himself. Think about that and then love the person you like the least that way. Um, it's a high calling. And if you want to leave church today and not come back until you get it right, I don't think you're going to achieve it. I think this is something that we're going to work on together. I think it's something that I'm going to hurt you in the process and you're going to hurt me and it's going to be okay. 
and the Lord is going to do something profound and, and maybe we'll apologize and maybe we'll yield and maybe we'll be wrong for a little while and then we'll get back on track. But the Lord is going to work something mighty between us as we learn to be his disciples and to love him and to love each other. So, the last couple of weeks, or especially last week, if you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, um, these things are online. You don't have to like guess what's going on. Um, if you're like an audio person, it's on uh, Apple Podcasts. My preferred method is YouTube because I put like the verses on the screen and stuff. It looks really good. We have a nice camera. Check it out on YouTube. We've also been putting like personal testimonies on YouTube, uh, which is really cool. So go share those videos with your friends and family. They're really, really good. Tina's is coming out this week. It's going to be awesome. Um, but last week, Nate was talking about like using spiritual gifts to actually help one another and how to encourage each other through the gifts that God has given us. And, and I think that's such a powerful thing. And really, this, this sort of environment is not an appropriate way to be able to explain those things. And I just think it won't be. I think preaching is relatively inadequate in that way. I think it should give us some sort of information. It should prepare us and equip us. But ultimately, to really uh, like flesh out nuance and these sort of things, it's like, I feel like my gift is helps. It's in a list. It's in the Bible. How do I do that? How do I do that in church? Do I just start fixing people's cars in the parking lot while service is going on? How do I actually walk through these things? And I think the Lord is giving us some direction. Like I was talking about earlier, like if I were to just tell you like, all right, go out today and make a friend. It's like, how even do you do that? In 2022, you don't know what's going to be behind the face of the person you're approaching. You just don't know. And I think there's something that's powerful that the Lord gives us in this next small section. Let's look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And I think this is... This is um, pretty cool because there's, there's a, I don't, I don't know if a movement is the right thing. There's this sort of notion that's, that's uh, buzzed around Pagosa. And if it happened in Pagosa, it probably has happened other places. Um, where people are unhappy with the way the big C church is being run. I think the church in America is not the way the church in the Bible is supposed to be. So I don't want anything to do with it. And... Uh, I, I see where they're coming from, you know? I think most churches in America would be like, well, I agree. <laughs> you know, like, I agree that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And, and there's a, a litany of reasons for, for that, that sort of thing, not to mention, like, the fact that our culture is very different than it was back in the first century, and, and things have changed a lot, and, and we're in a very different context, we're, well, whatever. Things have changed. But there's something that gives me some sort of confidence, and it gives me confidence to be here. It gives me confidence to be um, a part of the church in general. And it is that Jesus seems to care a great deal about assembling. Jesus seems to care a great deal about uh, being together and encouraging one another. And so with that, I, I'm... I'm hesitant to ever say like, yeah, we just shouldn't, we shouldn't do things the way we're doing them because they're not perfect. 
If you would, if you would uh, like indulge me for a moment, I don't want it to be misunderstood. I'm not saying like, let's get together and knowingly mess up. No, I, I think there's something about confidence here. It's like there are things that churches can do that are not helpful and that are not biblical. There are things that churches can do that are somewhat helpful, but not necessarily biblical. And there are things that churches can do that try so hard to imitate what the early church did, that they have this own tribalism, that we're doing it right and everybody else is stupid and wrong. Like everybody's like, if you're not a part of a denomination, then you're not true to biblical Christianity because you don't have presbyteries and, and uh, a multitude of elders. And you don't. If you're not under an apostle, then you're not true to biblical Christianity. If you're not meeting in homes, you're not true to biblical Christianity. If you're not taking communion every day, you're not true to... Like, we can find a tribe in anything that we want to do. But what I'm so zealous for is that we actually get together and let the word of Christ dwell richly. And God has shown us so much grace in America that we have a building and it's paid off, baby. We don't owe money on this, this wonderful facility that the Lord has literally sustained and kept the roof on the last couple of years. Like the Lord has literally done it by prayer and fasting. The Lord has literally done it for decades. We've been here. And I'm hesitant to be like, no, it's wrong. Tear down the building. Let's all squeeze into my little tiny living room. It's wrong. It's dirty. No, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And he tells us how to do that with all wisdom, teaching, and correcting each other. Sing songs. Praise God we've done it. We've had church this morning. That we want the word of Christ to dwell richly with us. And we want to teach and correct and we want to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So if you're offended about our liturgy or the liturgy of another church, I would ask you this morning, if they're true to the gospel of Jesus, try and forgive them today. I'm not asking you to leave our church and go to somebody else's church if you need to forgive them. No, I'm just kidding. If, if that's what the Lord is doing, then let the Lord do it. But the, the idea is, like, we're not in competition with the church down the road, across the street. We're not in competition with the church in Africa that is multiplying rapidly. We're not in competition with the church in Iran that is experiencing violent persecution. We're not in competition. We're on the same team. And the people that are gathering in their houses because they have no other option, praise God. The people who have a lady pastor because all the men are in prison, praise God. The people who have uneducated leaders who are just doing their darndest to bring the word of God as a workman approved through their own simple study and through the resources of the internet, praise God for the churches that are using YouTube worship and they have an out-of-tune singer. Praise God that we're still getting together and letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us. And we're going to get it wrong. Somebody's going to bring something to us someday and we're going to be like, well, shoot. You're right. That is what that says. Darn it. <laughs> and vice versa. People are going to be like, this is the way I think things should go. And we're going to be like, I don't think that's true. Or better yet, I don't think that's helpful in this season. Like tearing down our building and meeting in, in Joey and Janelle's living room. I don't necessarily think that's helpful. Love you guys. Your driveway is going to be a, a disaster during the winter. Like, it's just not how it works. Like, that'll be so hard for us, you know? Like, not any offense to your driveway. You said that to me, that your driveway is hard in the winter. Our driveway, the church's driveway is hard in the winter, you know? And, and I, think, 
um, I, I have confidence being here today, not necessarily in, in, uh, in competition with other churches, but I have confidence that we're just trying to do what we think the Bible says. We're just trying to do what the Holy Spirit led us to do. It's like, guys, we're not Pentecostal because we come from a long tradition and, our, and, our, and all of our daddies and granddaddies were Pentecostal. We're Pentecostal because that's what the Bible says. And to the best of our interpretation, that's what we believe. And we worked really hard to make sure that we're asking the right questions, to make sure that we're observing the right things. We pray for, for healing and deliverance because that's what the Bible does, you know? And there's lots of things that Pentecostals do that we don't because we don't think the Bible says that we should do them, you know? And it's like, we, we want to be true to the Lord. We want to be true to that. And we want to grow in that discipline together. And I love verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I've been working with this with my children because there's something about children that is kind of evil, you know? I mean, some kids are, like, like really nice, but, like, sometimes, like, we, we did, like, a spontaneous trip to Albuquerque. Just, we were, our house was smelling really bad. We had some mold problems, and we're just like, let's just go. Let's just get out of, out of town. We went to the zoo in Albuquerque, and it was an amazing time, but the hippos were missing. They were just gone. Not missing. They were somewhere. Right? We just didn't see them. And the polar bears were missing. And our kids were deeply disappointed. And I was like, I've never seen a flamingo before today, and I've seen a flamingo today. I saw a snapping turtle that is basically a modern-day dinosaur, and I was having the time of my life. And my kids are just so disappointed that they didn't see these two animals, even though they saw so many other cool things. And we had such a nice time. We went out for lunch and all this sort of stuff. And it gets so frustrating because you're like, just be grateful, darn it. Like, just, just find something good to look at. And it's like, it, you can look at it like, you, you foolish children. Like, why don't you get this? But it's like, that's the tendency of everyone. If you've ever been in America, which you all have, I know for a fact, we relate on complaining. Gas is so expensive. My commute was so long. My town doesn't have stuff. Your town has too much stuff. We relate on complaining rather than being grateful. And if that's not true about you, don't take offense to that. Be grateful that the Lord has worked in your life and made you grateful. <laughs> but I want to be that way, not in some sort of like ignoring myself, like, wow, I'm in so much pain right now. Uh, like a couple of months ago, my family got in a really bad car accident. And, uh, and I, uh, everybody's fine. I think the Lord honestly healed my son. He was in, in pretty bad shape. Um, <laughs> and I have to go to court now. And, and the, the other party that hit us is, is suing us for, uh, uh, well, they're not suing us. It's a whole thing. But they want us to pay a whole bunch of money. And it feels inappropriate. It feels wrong, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I'm driving, because I have to drive to Del Norte to do it. And I'm driving over the pass, and it's raining. And I'm like, I'm so grateful <laughs> that I get to do this today. And I'm so grateful that uh, this, this other party wants me to pay for their 30-year-old truck to get replaced. You know, I'm so grateful that all of this is happening. And it's easy to just ignore yourself and just try and pretend like you're grateful. But Lord, help me to actually be grateful. And I've said this to many people, and I, and I, and I beg it to be true of the Lord. I, I got to keep my kid. So even if I do have to pay a ton of money, it's going to be okay. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that the Lord is teaching us lessons that the Lord is providing for us in this way. And I'm grateful that in the leanness 
of the, the, most, uh, the most tremendous times of suffering and lack that we are able to trust God that he is who he said he is. That if persecution comes in America, that we could all say we're grateful that Jesus is worth dying for. That those who trust in him will not be ashamed or disappointed. That even the martyrs who sit under the throne of God and cry out for justice will be vindicated. I have really gotten off of where I started. Sorry. (laughs) I take a lot of notes and for this very Um, let's, let's talk really quick about the, the peace of God ruling in our hearts. Um, when I think about this, uh, as I, as I've read about this, as I've kind of tried to, to, uh, go through this, I thought about like the reconciliation that we're permitted through Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, the, that we have right relationship with God. That should be like the, the source that we draw from for motivation, and I hope this is at some encouragement to somebody. I'm not a bubbly person. Uh, some of you are very bubbly person, persons, people. Some of you have a very welcoming, like, I, I rarely see Stan not smiling. <laughs> Kelly Ward makes you feel like it's your birthday every day. Like, talking to her, and, and it's her whole family is like that. They're just such hospitable, kind people. And, uh, but none of us are that great. (laughs) So like, um, don't, I shouldn't have used personal examples if I was going to follow it up with that. But the idea is if you don't have that, if you're not a Stan or a Kelly, that you're just crazy nice innately, don't think that you cannot be compassionate or kind or, or full of love. If you don't have a microphone to talk to people to explain how bad you are that Jesus is working in you, don't think that you're counted out from that. Because what's happening is the peace of Christ, the, the, the gift of righteousness that Jesus accomplished on the cross is what motivates us. That's what we draw from to love people. It's not just your own bubbly personality. There's not people that are more disposed to love than other people. Like we're all called and purposed to do it. That was my note on the peace of Christ. So uh, I probably should take a, a second about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because I think there's been a good effort to like define what each of those words mean. And I think both with history, literature, and the Bible, we don't get very, very clear definitions. Uh, and so uh, Todd Still is the uh, commentator that I was reading on this. And he's like, our best assessment is that they're basically synonymous, <laughs> that they're all songs that you're singing in an assembly. And it may make some appeal, and this is not an inappropriate interpretation, this may make some appeal to a variety of songs. And that the songs are a function of our worship before God. They're not the, the summation of our worship. They're not everything about worship. Worship isn't just the song portion. Worship is our entire gathering for the glory of the Lord. Worship is our lives uh, set apart and holy to God, beloved by him. But there's something about the variety of songs that are meant to encourage, convict, exalt the Lord. There's something about that that is very, very biblical and something that I'm I'm excited that we still carry that tradition in its form today. That the point of songs during church is not to attract visitors. The point of songs in church is not to uh, put on a performance and kind of make a better name for our church. I've been at places like this who have all the stuff, who have all the gear, who have all the talent, and that's not the end goal. 
I'm not saying those things inherently are bad, having like talent and skills and equipment and whatever, but it's like that's not our, our primary concern. Our primary concern is with all wisdom that we would be admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if there is a variety, we may have like songs that are set and songs that are spontaneous. Um, this uh, expositor's Bible commentary, which if, if you've familiar with uh, like theology language, sounds very like cessationist, sounds very like expositors, Bible, commentary. It sounds very like dry, academic. But he's like, I think honestly there's, there's a case to make, and this is the way he said it, so I'll say it the way he said it, for uh, glossolalic songs, which means singing in tongues. <laughs> and it's like, that's not a, a, a adverse interpretation of what we're reading here. And so the point is that we would come together with wisdom and teaching and songs and that we would do these things for the glory of the Lord and for the help of one another. Let's close it up. Verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And I love this because we want to read things in context. We want to read with understanding we want to read with, with spiritual insight and, and um, eyes that see correctly. And, and the Lord is so kind to give us something like this. It's like, if you're still struggling with the specifics, just remember that whatever you do, do for the name of Jesus. Whatever you do. And, and you may find yourself at a, at a junction someday where you're like, how do I do this for the name of Jesus? I think that is a good point to consider. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Um, that it's not only for his name and for his glory, but it's in thanksgiving. And, and I hope and I pray for our church that this is always going to be a mark. And I hope and I pray for your families and our families that, that we will always have this as a mark, that whatever we're doing, we're doing for the name of Jesus. We're not doing for our own reputations or our own sort of, I don't know, brand ambassadorship but we're doing so for the name of Jesus and thanksgiving for what he's done and uh and that's a motivation for teaching that's a motivation for the order of service and, and all these sort of things and it's changed over the years and we've changed over the years and we'll keep on changing until the, the day that the Lord comes back and he writes the wrongs but for now I, I would just invite you to to join in this commission with us that um I, I pray that this would be like a home to you. Uh, not in the way that like whatever you want to do, you can do it, but in a way that uh, we're serving our Father, the Lord, and it belongs to Him and we belong to Him. That We're hidden in Christ and when He's revealed, we're revealed, and that this would be something that would, would follow us for the rest of our lives and that even the... Uh, traditions of men and the elementary principles of life would not steal away from us, that we would, again, hold fast to the confession of our faith and the truth that is in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.